Hello and welcome to The Blueprint by Ballymore, the podcast that looks at how we can build better cities, speaking to urban innovators from around the world. I'm your host, journalist and broadcaster, Jonathan Openshaw, and in this opening episode of our six-part series, we're celebrating the humble neighbourhood and asking how cities can keep a human touch as they grow rapidly in the 21st century. Now, anyone who's lived in a global city knows that they can be the most exciting, inspiring and productive places on earth. Cities offer huge advantages, from culture to commerce, but it's easy to forget that they're a relatively new invention in the long arc of humanity, and the fact is we never evolved to live in societies this vast and overstimulating. As well as their advantages, we're beginning to understand the drawbacks of megacity life, and one of the big ones can be the loss of community connection that you get in smaller settlements, like towns and villages. Well, in this episode, we'll be asking one of the world's best-known urban visionaries, Danish architect Jan Gell, about how to keep a sense of human connection. We found that city centres all over the world tend to be one square kilometre. That is what people can walk in one trip. So it, it comes from the body, what we think is a handy size of a city, actually. Retail guru Mary Portis will be sharing her vision for a mixed-use neighbourhood built around people. You know, when you create local, you really have a connection with the people who are running those businesses. You see through to the soul. And we're going to be shifting into that. And if I was building towns or cities or planning, I'd be seriously taking into consideration this shift that's happening with people. And Glenn Howells, the architect of Mill Harbour, will be sharing a little more about Ballymore's plans for a new urban village, a short stroll from Canary Wharf. What's unique about Mill Harbour is the way that it's been conceived from the outset as being about sharing, not separating. At some point in 2006, the world sailed over an invisible line that meant for the first time in the history of humanity we had become a majority urban species. Now, we'll never know in which urban hospital that baby was born or what train station that intrepid Dick Whittington stepped off at in search of his or her fortune, but from that moment on, more of us have lived in the urban jungle than in all the rural towns and villages combined. And we've never looked back, it seems. The rate of urban growth has us on track to be 68% city slickers by 2050, according to the UN, while in the UK, 83% of us already call cities home. With megacities on the rise, from 37 million strong Tokyo to Delhi's 29 million, we're entering a new era of high-density living. But with all this growth and innovation, are we at risk of losing intimacy? And could the humble village provide inspiration for how to build better communities in the bustling global metropolis? These are questions that I wanted to put to Jan Gell, the Danish architect and urban visionary who has transformed the way that we conceive of cities today, boosting quality of life through putting people front and centre. I started off by asking him how the material fabric of a city impacts the community that forms there. We know that the contact pattern and the feeling of neighbourhood and whatever has a lot to do with how you live and how frequently you meet your neighbours and under which circumstances. All this we know pretty well now. And we can easily make a place where people are completely isolated and drive cars all the time. Actually, we have a place called a prison, which is organised as a place where you don't are not supposed to meet with other, other people. And we also have in the other end, 
We know that row house areas, they produce the most street life per household. There are more people out in row house areas than anywhere else per household. If you have a five-story buildings and two-story buildings, there's most likely to be just as much life in front of the two-story houses as in front of the five-story houses. Because the upper stories, they don't come down. We know a lot about also that in ordinary urban areas, about half of everything happening is generated by the people living on the ground floor. That, that shows that easy access to get in and out has an enormous influence on how frequently you do it and in what way you do it. That focus on the kind of streetscape is a really interesting one, isn't it? Because it strikes me that we often talk about livable cities. We're kind of obsessed with rankings of how livable a city is. But actually, in reality, people don't really live in cities. They live in neighbourhoods um, more and, you know, streets. That's the human experience. Like Mega cities are too vast to experience as a whole. Do we need to change the scale slightly and to hone in on, on neighbourhoods and the actual kind of human experience of cities? Even in the mega cities, you will find that they are subdivided into townships or so whatever. I know, say, I worked with New York City and with Manhattan, and I know that Lower Manhattan and and Tribeca and Soho and Greenwich Village and Chelsea and uh, Upper West and up. I know that it's subdivided, though it looks like one big melting pot it's very much subdivided and people know exactly where they belong and they also in each area have some areas where they are most likely to to meet some parks or whatever so even in big cities and also in london it's subdivided into more manageable sizes and we found that city centers all over the world tends to be one square kilometer that is what people can walk in one trip um, so it, it comes from the body, what we think is a, is, a size, is a handy size of a city, actually, the feet. Right. And it's that human scale that I think was lost in a lot of um, 20th century planning, the kind of grand zoning projects that you saw where you'd have a whole quarter dedicated to culture and a quarter dedicated to retail and people were expected to kind of shuffle in between. Have we moved beyond that now and seeing much more focus on having a kind of vibrancy of mixed amenities within walking distance? If we look closer where all this zoning comes from, it's basically... It starts with the modernist in the, in the 20s who starts to say that, that we shall never bring different things together, always separate things. And basically they said have living, working, recreation and communication and keep it always apart and do it in, in individual zones. So And even down to playgrounds, you play here. And it, before that, children played all over. And in the old cities... Uh, on the farms, there were no playgrounds because the farm was a playground. In Venice, there was no playgrounds because the city was a playground. But with the modernists, we needed playgrounds because you rest here, you sleep here, you play here, you work here, whatever. And all this we have come to know is actually against human nature because you don't departmentalize your life in that way you do something, you work with something, and then a nice uh, person or a friend of yours come by, and then you start to socialize, and, and then you go for a coffee, and then you return to work. 
So life is not square. Life is not uh, naturally compartmentalized. That sense of dislocation that you're talking about, it feels like that's really coming to a head now in the so-called loneliness epidemic um, that's sweeping many world cities. How can design overcome that and help create a better sense of connection and place? I would say that if you look at cities, we have put a lot of emphasis onto mobility. That means that we have all the, nearly all the public spaces are devoted to mobility, to getting from one place to another. I think that we have really done much too little uh, to make it worth going to a place. So that there's a saying from Gertrude Stein, uh, a sign I'm arriving to Oakland, there is no there, there. So we have really put all the eggs in the mobility basket and done very little to make sure it's worth to go to this area or to that area and that it has a heart and it has a structure. I know, of course, of, of all these symptoms of loneliness and alienation. And we, I have been involved recently in doing a number of housing areas where everything is done to make, we call it the little life of people possible, that you pass each other's door, that you have gardens facing the street that a lot of people will walk rather than drive in the neighborhood so that all these little encounters we knew from older days where you meet each other naturally every day you meet 20 people from around and over half a year or three years you will actually come to know them pretty well and know that these are part of my surroundings and not you are completely living in no man's land. That's also why we start now very much to compress and make very careful um, edges of the building and very careful spaces so that the spaces are wonderful and invite you to walk and bike rather than to jump into your car as soon as possible. So finally, looking to the future then, what do you think are the main priorities, things that we need to tackle in order to create um, livable neighbourhoods and in turn livable cities? Of course, the major challenge we have of all of them is the climate challenge, that we have to do something with our modes of mobility and our ways of organising the cities so that we will uh, be much more sustainable. And of course, another one is this seating syndrome that we have to move more. And also we get older and older. And in the older age, you have to be living in a place where you can move your body around. It doesn't matter if the doctor say you have to do 10,000 steps a day, my friend, if there's nowhere to do it. And it's so unappetizing and unattractive that you won't consider it at all. And the third thing is this social thing, that the modernists, they completely overlooked the fact that man is a social animal. They looked at creating uh, thing, places which were physiologically healthy, where you had fresh air and running water and uh, sewer systems, and then you would be sound and safe. But they completely overlooked the social factor that we are social animals that the greatest interest in life we have is other people. So I really think that the lively, inviting city is a very important thing. 
and actually that will that will also address the other issues of seating syndrome and sustainability and lower need for resources in the life. So um, I can see these things go together and support each other. And that is clearly what is being thought about in many places by now. That was the architect and planner, Yang Gel, on the importance of an inviting city that encourages people to spill out onto the streets, to walk, shop and mingle. Now, we touched on it in that interview, but although we often talk about how livable certain cities are, the fact is that most cities today are too vast to be experienced as one coherent thing. It's fair to say that we don't actually live in cities at all. We live in neighbourhoods, and it's that unique mix of shops, culture, restaurants, cafes and bars that really makes up our experience of a place. My next guest has made it her life's mission to keep local neighbourhoods alive, most especially the British High Street, which has suffered so badly in recent years. Mary Portis is a retail expert, broadcaster, campaigner and all-round champion for local retail, having been commissioned by the UK government to lead the Portis Review into a more sustainable future for local neighbourhoods. I started off by asking her what she thinks about the relationship between livable cities and thriving neighbourhoods. Let me see. Now recording, new recording. Off we go. But I think what we mean by livable cities is, you know, and it could be that livable cities are broken down by the sum of parts of neighbourhoods within that. I mean, I think that's the generic overriding, is it? Wherever we're, whether it's a town, whether it's a village, you know, whether it's a hood within a city, whether a postcode within a city, what we're actually saying is, what do we want as humans? How do we want to live? And um, that that's really the big question here. What is it? that makes us feel human and what makes us feel connected, what makes us feel that we have a social infrastructure that's around us. And I think that is absolutely central to how we want to connect and live our lives. Right. So in many ways, you know, it's not really it's not really reinventing the wheel, is it? It's about going back to the bedrock of what makes us human and things that maybe we've lost sight of in the kind of cleverness of vast, smart cities today with their master plans and zone districts. But maybe what we've actually lost in that is the kind of vibrant hodgepodge of what makes a good neighbourhood on the ground. Yeah, well, I, I certainly don't think those districts, you know, yes, as destinations, but I don't think that that's the sort of places I want to be hanging out in and living in. I mean, I go back to Jane Jacobs. I thought everything that Jane Jacobs wrote about, you know, in, in her seminal piece of work, The Death of the American City, still rings true today, you know, that cities or towns or whatever we decide to call them should be designed by people for people. Not for business, <laughs> for people. Now, that doesn't mean that business doesn't go into those cities. I think it's a mix of social, well-being, green space, absolutely central to it. Basic fundamental stuff that we need each day where we pop out to the shops. Um, and whether that's cafes, restaurants, whether that's us going to our yoga studios, whether that's going to the doctors. It's a mix of the stuff that we need. And Jane Jacobs talked about this. She said, these things seem so trivial. You know, I'm popping out for a loaf of bread. I'm popping out for a newspaper. Or I'm just going out for a coffee. Or I'm taking the kids for a walk in the park with the dog. 
and you bump into someone on the way who you say hello to and then you notice that your friend's kids are having a fag on the front of <laughs> the shop so you go boys watch it and she says these things seem so trivial but the sum of these things aren't trivial at all what they are is a web of security and it's a social infrastructure that i personally believe we need in our lives and here's the opportunity with all that we're seeing crashing around us these big chains and shops through the covid crisis let's look at the role of the local the uber local which i genuinely believe is going to come back so thinking about the uber local then what does that actually look like and um, where can we kind of look for inspiration when we're designing these kind of livable thriving neighborhoods well i think you know look at you know the one one of my worst things that ever happened and of course i'm looking at it from the perspective of you know consumerism was where we did the retail parks now if anywhere you want to go and die your days it would be you know anything but a retail park and you know when you when you see all these businesses that chose to go there displacing our high street in doing so and government saying but this is what people want you go i'm not sure it is what people want it's what you've given them and um it's not difficult to understand you know you go back to the greek agora that's look at the greek agora there they were meeting in the town voting you know there was you know some of the wonderful great philosophers socrates wandering around having a few words with people my god wouldn't we want that today and then some clever little person puts a stall up a market stall and starts selling stuff you know and that's why you know this this the markets why well, brought back markets to high street they people crave a market crave it because it's about connection so perhaps it's fair to say that success has for too long um, been focused on commercial success rather than social success. And maybe we need different metrics that are less just about kind of efficiency and things that actually will prioritise things like human connection or intangibles like well-being and community. Well, you know, we have to now change what is success. And that's going to come, a lot of this is going to come from people saying no. I don't want to live like that anymore. And I don't want to shop with people like that anymore. I'm not buying into that. There's a new value system coming. So, you know, those values need to be taken into consideration. Even I was looking at the stats that have been coming out of during COVID. And something like 70% of people are saying businesses are behaving well and decently. We will support 70%. That is going to be just as important to us as price and convenience. And, you know, when you create local, you really have a connection with the people who are running those businesses. You see through to the soul. And we're going to be shifting into that. And if I was building towns or cities or planning, I would be seriously taking into consideration this shift that's happening with people. What we've forgotten is about the human needs in all of this. And I think that is just so utterly vital. We lost that in our chase for profit. And we lost an understanding of how we want to live and what is important to us as humans. So, you know, this is this is a, an opportunity, a space to recreate that. Um, and it might not be as soon as, as my generation, but I would like to think that it's certainly going to be for generations following on.
So in some ways, it sounds like the same um, process that we've gone through with technology. All this innovation brought in wonderful things, um, but a lot of disruption. And now it's only now that we're more familiar, it's part of our lives, that the dust has settled. And we're starting to see, you know, what the great benefits are, but also potentially what's been lost as well. So perhaps the same with cities that, you know, we've had all this incredible growth, but now we're actually remembering what was maybe better about a simpler way of life and about a kind of less complicated um, way of living. I agree. I think that's a really good point. And I think the other thing about tech, when you say it was, it just seemed so hard, didn't it? It was the future. And we got so excited about it that we forgot our human needs. And I think that's really important. But interestingly, I think what's happened with tech, which has saved us all it, it, through COVID, we've realised that. But we've also realised that its use can be about connecting as well. And that at the heart of the great businesses have been putting communities online, you know, and um, actually still being able to talk and connect. And we realise that that is such a valuable part of how we live. But you miss that nuance of even working in an office, you know, the little chit chat that you might have while you're making a coffee to each other. You don't get that when you're doing a meeting digitally. So we're really understanding this. It's take a month to understand the nuance of humanity and our social needs. And that has to be at the heart of it. And, I, and interestingly, I think the way that we've even started to use tech to connect has softened. So I think that soft power that I talk about, and it is a feminine one, it is a feminine power that's coming. And I think that has to be the base of what we think great cities, great neighborhoods, and the way we want to live in the future will be. Long live Jane Jacobs, I say. <laughs> that was Mary Portis on the importance of soft power and designing neighbourhoods around people. Now, Ballymore's new development of Mill Harbour puts this urban village concept into action, with 1,600 new homes being combined with two new schools, a world-class cultural venue, independent retail, acres of parkland, a forest, a thriving waterfront and innovative fitness centres, all a stone's throw from Canary Wharf. To get a better understanding of the thinking behind the development, I spoke to project architect Glenn Howes and started off by asking him why this concept of an urban village became so important when designing Mill Harbour. So I think actually in the 21st century what we're seeing is, I don't think urban villages are a new thing, I think what we're seeing is very much a return to something that's been around for hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years, which is that people come together around a program of uses in a, in a location which is walkable, it's very important, doesn't involve necessarily mechanical transport. Uh, and that f helps us to then create a sense of community. That's actually the story of urbanism. That's the way that we, throughout time, have preferred to live in clusters rather than be in separate family units separated. And it's the idea of positively collaborating and sharing things that I think is the essence of the way that we should be designing villages, towns and cities. So that was the vision then. What are the practicalities? How does it actually translate into the design of Mill Harbour itself? So what we're looking to do is actively create environments that bring people together. One of the biggest challenges in mega cities such as London is this idea of loneliness and separation. So what we are trying to do is create and cluster things so people don't need to travel long distances to do things. That wherever possible, you can come out of your home, 
bump into other people, get to know them. And so it's the informal circulation areas are as important to doing this as any of the specific areas. So the specific areas such as the wellness facilities, the gym, theatres, the schools, all those are specific. But as important as those areas are these things, you know, the circulation spaces, the lobby areas, the, the way people just move through the buildings and outside the building and the places to create great opportunities for people to bump into each other and get to know other people there. So that's, that's the essence of what we've been trying to do at Mill Harbour. What we're realising today is that lives are much more complex in the way we do things. We, we don't do things in eight hour sort of sections. What we, we, we now do is we'll do some work, which is then, then we'll do some exercise and then we'll do some play. And sometimes that will all, you can do all those things from home or being very close to home. So this idea that cities need to have districts for different uses is gone. And at Mill Harbour, I think we are driving that idea more than any other project we've done because it's the one project where we've got all the different ingredients that we can really create this thriving community because everything that you could possibly want to do uh, it, it, it is within walking distance. And I think key and core to this idea is the idea of the extended home. And by, by that, what we mean by the extended home is that whilst you've got your living, uh, your home itself, which provides fantastic space, outdoor, private outdoor space as well, all the homes at Mill Harbour will have really generous outdoor space. So they're self-contained and they're private. But what we're looking to do is to go beyond that at Mill Harbour and to really expand the, the next range, the next layer of activities and opportunities around that. And so residents at Mill Harbour will be able to, for example, do things like work and play within the, with, within the development um, without having to go to a leisure club or without having to then go to a different sort of working space. So we think, you know, the idea, what we've been looking to do is develop spaces and opportunities all the way through the, 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 the development, which then make that sort of seamless and enjoyable. You mentioned the idea of community um, quite a bit there. And, you know, community is one of those notoriously difficult things to create. How can you as an architect um, create the conditions for a vibrant community to grow? In, in designing Mill Harbour, we've been looking over a long, you know, places which have grown over a long period of time and some in recent history and some from ancient history. Because uh, all of the places that we've learned from exhibit the same sort of qualities. Over time, they've grown really strong and thriving communities where people are proud to be associated with that place and actually don't want to leave. I think what is unique about Mill Harbour is probably the scale, actually. The scale of ambition and the scale of the offer, other than just the homes. So what we've got at Mill Harbour, not just one school, we've got two brand new schools. We've got a theatre, Stroke Arts Centre, which will have an amazing programme. And then we've got two parks, we've got play areas, we've got gyms, we'll have creche, we'll have a range of different working places so where people can then informally work rather than working from home or having to travel to, 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 to an office somewhere. So it's the scale of ambition and it's the scale and range of opportunities to do things. We're all within this sort of walkable district.
And I think that's that. And I think what will make it unique is, I think this will be as significant as some of the developments that we now look back on, which have achieved that over the last 50 or 100 years, such as the Barbican, where we bring together this sort of network of opportunities for people to then for, meet and share things and do things collectively rather than separately. That was Mill Harbour architect Glenn Howells discussing the extended home and the unique new community model being developed on the Isle of Dogs. And that's also all we have time for in this week's look at the renaissance of the neighbourhood in today's megacities. We'll be back next time with an episode looking at how arts and culture can help boost a sense of community, creating deeper connections between people in our often hectic urban lives. If you want to hear more about urban innovation, please do like and subscribe to the podcast on your provider. And of course, we would love it if you shared the series with your family, friends and colleagues. You can find out more details about all of our episodes and about Ballymore's new development at Mill Harbour itself in the show notes that accompany this episode. I've been your host, Jonathan Openshaw, and thanks again for tuning in. 